When we began our conference last year on depression, I thought it was important to kind of set the stage um, to offer a critique of the different ways that the church typically approaches the issue of depression and mental illness and all those things. And that seemed, from the feedback I got, that seemed to be a helpful way to kind of set the stage on why we're doing a conference last year on depression, this year on um, cultural engagement, cultural renewal, and all this stuff. And the reason why is because what you do is you look at, here's typically how the church comes at these issues. Here's where they're failing us in a lot of ways. And to leave here tonight asking the question, what are we missing? Um, isn't there a better way to come about this issue? And then the conference is an attempt to answer that question and offer another way forward. I want to do the same thing tonight um, with this issue. I want to offer a critique, um, a charitable critique, not a, not a critical critique, but critique in an intellectual sense, um, an evaluation of the reigning strategies of cultural change that we find in the church. Um, I, want to, I want to go through those and, 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 and show um, the strengths and weaknesses of both. Before I do that, I, I do want just from the beginning to do this so that I don't have to do this uh, throughout the whole week. Um, I need to just give intellectual credit where credit is due. I have been greatly influenced in this area by two Christian cultural scholars, uh, both from the University of Virginia. Uh, one's Dr. James Hunter, and, and one, the other is Dr. Greg, Greg Thompson. Um, and um, James Hunter wrote a book entitled To Change the World that has really shaken up the evangelical culture um, by challenging long-held assumptions and methodologies that have guided us in our engagement of the world. Um, however, To Change the World is not a very accessible read for most people. Um, and it's mostly discussed and debated among scholars and philosophers and theologians. And so, um, and so the, there was the dilemma of this wonderful work, which is really Hunter's life work. He's been studying culture for many years. Um, but James Hunter mentored a man who got his PhD from UVA, Greg Thompson. Now, Greg is certainly a scholar, but he's also a very gifted communicator and pastor. Um, and uh, he served a long time as a PCA minister. And so Greg kind of has that uh, Tim Keller-like voice that is able to take um, really high concepts and disseminate them down into accessible and practical ways for people like me and, and many of you. Um, and so what Greg did is essentially take, he's made it his, honestly, he's made his life mission to take Hunter's work and not just make it more accessible, but actually see it lived out in practical ways. Um, now, Greg is a friend and somewhat of a mentor to me, and so his thoughts have greatly influenced me in this area. So, um, when I speak in these, on, these, on these issues in particular, it's, it's kind of a, I'm just doing this to be above reproach in, uh, in, with intellectual property. It's kind of a, a Greg Thompson through James Hunter, honestly through a guy by the name of Leslie Newbegin, um, who is obviously a great, um, many of you know Leslie Newbegin, obviously a great thinker on these issues. So what I'm delivering to you, not just tonight, but throughout this conference, is basically a convergence of uh, James Hunter and Greg Thompson's thoughts that I have kind of taken and tweaked and added to over the years to make my own. And I'm just saying all that up front so that I don't have to constantly go back and uh, reference these guys uh, both tonight and throughout this week. I just, I'm just trying to be very honest above reproach with intellectual thoughts and, and these things. So 
uh, that's my caveat. Um, if, if, if I sound smart this week, I'm not as smart as I sound. Uh, it's smarter people that I'm copying. All right, um, so Restoration Project, Renewing Our Broken World by Recapturing God's Perfect Plan. Um, everyone instinctively knows that something is horrifically wrong with the world as we know it. Everyone, um, Christian and secular alike, is keenly aware of the mess that is our world. Um, if you go onto your social media f- news feed, what, what is it if nothing more than people complaining about the world, either uh, cultural or global crises or just personal inconveniences that you're going through in the world? What is it if nothing more than people complaining about the world, about the state of the world, and arguing about how to fix the world? That's, that's social media, complaining about the world and arguing um, about how to fix the world. Um, or that's Facebook and, and Twitter. Instagram is a whole other deal. That's just our attempt to pretend that there is a different world out there that exists. Um, that's social media. Actually, I'll throw that one in. That's social media. Complaining about the world, arguing about how to fix the world, and collectively pretending like a different world exists than it really does. Now, the Bible actually has a very compelling worldview to offer this debate, both um, in its diagnosis of why the world is so broken and in its answer to the brokenness. Um, however, the Christian worldview, um, which was once the leading voice in this area, is now largely dismissed or even despised. And I don't think we can blame the secular world for that development. We want to. We want to just say it's all those mean secular people who, who don't like the church and don't appreciate us anymore and marginalize us. But I think Christians need to look in the mirror and ask whether we are offering and living out a compelling and effective vision of cultural engagement and cultural change. Uh, The biblical worldview certainly has the ultimate solution to our messed up world. But I'll be perfectly honest, I think that solution has been largely forgotten or maybe ignored or maybe even despised. And so we are hosting a conference around what we believe is a biblical solution to this messed up world, renewing our broken world by recapturing God's perfect plan. But this evening, what I want to do is consider the different strategies that the church uh, seems to be using, strategies which I'm going to argue uh, seem to be failing us. At the risk of oversimplification, I'm going to group the different ways that Christians typically engage this fallen world into three categories. Um, Again, these labels from Greg Thompson, um, you've probably heard me use them uh, many times before, but they're very helpful. Um, Fortification, accommodation, and domination. When you think about how Christians and the church engage the world, it's typically through one of those three methods or paradigms, fortification, accommodation, and domination. Um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through each of these strategies, giving a passage of Scripture that I believe embodies each of them. Uh, it's a moment in Jesus' life where I feel like Jesus was encountering that particular paradigm. I want to I look at it, and then I want to look at the strengths and weaknesses of each, and then we'll close by introducing what I believe is a biblical strategy, perfectly displayed in the life of the Lord Jesus, and then we will spend the rest of the week unpacking that. So let's go. A fortification, Matthew 9. 9 through 11. Of course, there are many passages I could turn to for this, but this is one of the classic ones. This is Jesus. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. 
And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, what, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The fortification paradigm is consistently embodied in the life of the Pharisees throughout the gospel. Now, we are conditioned to hate the Pharisees, right? The big bad Pharisees, the New Testament. But you need to know that if you were a religious social conservative in that day, you would have deeply admired the Pharisees. They would have been your heroes. And if you're a religious social conservative in that day, you would have struggled with the same people that the Pharisees struggled with. Like in this passage, tax collectors and sinners. Now, I'm not just going to make that claim. I'll prove it to you. Um, if you don't like corrupt, uh, big government taxation, then you would not like tax collectors. Uh, because that's what they represented. Uh, imagine if the IRS had agents roaming about, not only to collect enormous taxes of a big government which most people in this room, though I know that's not all people in this room, don't like the idea of a big government. So big government, empire government, big taxes, and agents just roaming around, coming up to you at any point and saying, I need some taxes for whatever that is that you're doing. So, so big, enormous taxes from the government, and these people, as payment for the job, would overtax you and keep the difference for themselves. So... They represent high taxation, corruption, greed, stealing your money, your property. How would you feel about a person like that? You would feel like the Pharisees felt about them. And the sinners in this passage. That was a designation for those who just had a proud and blatant disregard for morality, particular sexual morality. I'll let you make your own connections to what that would look like in our society. Several groups probably come to mind for you. Just brazen, cavalier sexual immorality. So the point I'm making here is that a social and religious conservative would have admired the Pharisees as the gatekeepers of morality and traditional values and would have struggled or even despised tax collectors and sinners. Therefore, a major stumbling block you would have had with Jesus is that he dined with them. He reclined with them. He partied with them. Now, he never condoned their sin. He never joined in their sin. He never leaves them in their sin. He says, follow me, Matthew, and leave your greedy tax collection behind. But what Jesus did do was shatter the paradigm of fortification that the religious people in that day had developed. And this operative paradigm of fortification is still very tempting for us today. The central calling of fortification model is to protect against the world because the central threat of the fortification model is the danger of the world. So we hide in our churches, in our subcultures, in our neighborhoods, or in our lack thereof neighborhood, find <laughs> a place that has no neighbors, in our friendships, in our Bible studies, we create a fortress to hide from the world. And the only serious engagement with the world is through evangelism. We will leave the fortress to tell people about Jesus and invite them to join us within the safe confines of our fortress. 
But that's about the extent of our vision for cultural change. We can evangelize some people, get them into the fortress, disciple them, and teach them to be good. And then you get as many people into the fortress, and maybe we'll change the world. Now, let's be charitable, okay? The strength of the fortification paradigm is that it takes seriously the call of the church to be a holy people, which is why it is so tempting if you are a Christian who actually cares about denying sin and cultivating righteousness in your life. Those like me who, who find fortification very appealing, this is where I struggle, do so, I believe, out of a noble and genuine desire for holiness. However, the weakness of the fortification paradigm is that by viewing the world fundamentally as a threat, mission is completely compromised. You cannot change the world if you are hiding from the world. So fortification. The second strategy you'll see in our world is accommodation in the church. Matthew 13, 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all these, his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Absolutely fascinating passage. Um, that was actually, when we went through the Gospel of Mark, it was actually one of the most downloaded and shared sermons I preached was on that passage and the domestication of Jesus. What, what happens in the passage is this over-familiarity gives way to domestication, where they essentially say, hold on a minute, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Aren't these his brothers? And say, I, I remember Jesus growing up in the, playing in the streets. This, this, this is Jesus, the carpenter's son. And what happens is Jesus is accommodated. He is, he, is, he is placed in a box. In other words, Jesus fits into the reigning paradigms of the world. They can't see Jesus. They can't see his excellence, his brilliance, his anything, because they only see him according to the paradigms of the world. And we're seeing this play out still in our culture through this philosophy of accommodation. I see this in the prosperity gospel. He just wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Jesus is accommodated to the American dream of prosperity and excess. You'll see this in liberal expressions of Christianity. Jesus will never offend you. He just wants to be nice and love you how you are, not contradict you, not call you to die to self, not disagree with your lifestyle, but affirm yourself and be nice little addition to your self-discovery. Jesus is accommodated to the American vision of pluralism and tolerance and progressive ethics. We see this taking place in mainline denominations where there's really no difference between a church and a run-of-the-mill nonprofit philanthropy as far as their engagement of the world. We see this in the millennial kind of emergent Christianity that's come out. Jesus is just your bro that wants to share craft beer with you and be with you in your endless introspection and, 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 and make you feel good. Um, Jesus accommodated to America's new generation of really narcissistic self-obsession. In all of these forms, the church is engaging the world by accommodating the ways of the world. 
and this gets at the heart of this philosophy. The central calling of the accommodation paradigm is to is collaboration with the world because the central threat to the accommodation model is offending the world. So we compromise. We domesticate Jesus and strip him of his, uh, his exclusive claims of his lordship and ownership over the world of his unpopular and archaic ethics of his justice, of his wrath. And the only serious engagement with the world that happens within the accommodation paradigm is this non-threatening compromise. Please don't be offended. Please like me. Now, let's be charitable to them. The strength of the accommodation model is it does, not, it does take seriously the call of the church to actually engage the world and improve the world. And this is why it is so tempting to those who actually think that the church should be an agent of mercy and social change. That, that is, those who actually see Jesus hanging out with the poor and the marginalized and tax collectors and sinners and have this novel idea that Christians should probably try to do the same. And for that, they should be commended. However, the weakness of the accommodation paradigm is that by viewing the world fundamentally as a friend to partner with and not offend, the church compromises her identity. So in fortification, the church loses her mission. In accommodation, the church loses her identity. Domination. Luke 9, 51 through 56. Jesus encounters this way of thinking. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. But he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people, that is the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Now, that's, that may seem strange, but they hated Samaritans. They hated Samaritans. Um, Samaritans were seen as immoral, as what's wrong with the world. When you think of what's wrong with our world, when they thought what's wrong with the world, Samaritans. And only worse, they go into Samaritan village and they reject them. And so the disciples want to carpet bomb the village. Just let's Sodom and Gomorrah this place. And you might say, well, I mean, does that really apply to us? Anybody here want to actually do that to what you view as the enemies of God in the world? Um, no. But don't be so naive. I know you don't want fire to come down and consume places that reject Jesus in our world. But do you have hatred in your heart towards those places, those people, those who reject Jesus and his ways and are antagonistic against it? Do you have hatred in your heart towards them? If so, then according to the Sermon on the Mount ethic... You do want them destroyed. You hate them. And you see them as the enemy. If you view the world fundamentally with an adversarial relationship, then you are just like the disciples in this passage. We see this domination paradigm play out in the more aggressive expressions of evangelicalism and certainly in fundamentalism. We are at war with the world and we intend to win. We don't like them. Whoever them is, whether some of you is President Obama, some of you is Donald Trump and all he represents, President Obama and all he represents, we don't like them. And we're at war and we're going to win. 
So the central calling of the domination paradigm is to defeat the world because the central threat to the domination model is the triumph of the world. So we fight. We draw battle lines. We view issues of cultural change as culture wars. We are willing to play by their rules. Um, we'll get into the education world. We'll get into the politics. We'll get into political obsession is a widespread obsession with this, with this paradigm, by the way. Um, very, very obsessive politics. We'll get into the politics. We'll get into the public dialogue. We'll play by your rules, but by golly, we're going to win this game. And so the only serious engagement with the world turns into a fight in us versus them, militant, angry, combative, defensive, raging against the corruption of the culture. Now, let's be charitable. The strength of the domination paradigm is that it takes seriously the call of the church to be a holy people who engage the world. Unlike fortification, they are willing to engage this world. Unlike accommodation, they are unwilling to compromise their identity. That is, they are actually trying to be the people of God who actually want to change the world for God. And for that, they should be commended. However, the weakness of domination is that by viewing the world fundamentally as in opposition to be defeated, the church compromises her love. Love is the ultimate and paramount Christian ethic. Therefore, within Christian missiology, the world is not an enemy to defeat, but a neighbor to love. That's a direct quote from your Lord. And so according to 1 Corinthians 13 ethic, you could be on the right side of every moral debate and culture. You could fight to get your candidates in office and pass legislation, legislation that reflects the will of God. You could win the culture war and have not love, and it's all meaningless, according to 1 Corinthians 13. So now, just at the onset of this conference, I think it would be helpful to ex a helpful exercise for you to ask yourself and maybe dialogue tonight uh, with friends and, and, and whomever you came with, which of these paradigms do you find yourself gravitating toward? Which is attractive to you? Um, regarding your engagement with this broken, fallen, sinful world, do you tend toward fortification, accommodation, or domination? And I'll take that a step further. I think this being a TCPC conference, and I know that there are um, some here who aren't a part of our fellowship and, and a lot more listening uh, to this recording who are not a part of fellowship, but still, this being a TCPC conference and most of you being a part of our church family, we should also spend time evaluating and dialoguing about the paradigm of TCPC as a community. What kind of church are we? What would the city say? We are. Neighborhoods around us say that we are. What kind of place are we? I'll tell you what I think, and then maybe you can kick that around in conversations throughout the week. I'll just I'll, I'll share my thoughts, and maybe that'll get the conversation going. I think historically TCPC has been a fortification church with some domination sprinkled in. Um, for the most part, the ethos of our church regarding our place in the world has was to be a bastion of truth. Uh, of doctrinal, doctrinal and moral fidelity, a reformed evangelical fortress in the bluegrass. And I think we've had some members who were particularly drawn toward a domination paradigm of the world. I think that's been our identity historically. However, um, our church has essentially doubled 
over the past five years, and that brings a lot of cultural change to an institution. And I think the growth has brought a newfound sympathy towards accommodation more than we ever expected at TCPC. Um, of course, the biggest con con contributing factor to that is all of uh, the, 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 the younger um, dynamic that we're seeing at TCPC, all these millennials that have joined uh, with their ever incessant need to engage the culture in relevant ways, uh, to distance themselves from fortification and domination stigmas of their parents and grandparents' Christianity that they're so embarrassed by. And so they're trying to distance themselves from that, um, prove to the world that Christians can be cool and hip and passionate about social justice. But accommodation seems not just to be appealing to them, but as well to those who have joined us from the mainline denominations, which we're very thankful for, and those um, that, we, that I've noticed uh, through conversion. Um, those of you who join our fellowship because you have fallen in love with Jesus and want to follow Jesus, um, I think those groups have really stretched the culture of TCPC in healthy ways. Um, and I, I'll just, as a point of personal privilege, say I, I want to thank you for the way that you all have lovingly engaged each other in this cultural stuff. Um, because this is this is tension, and we all know that. And uh, and I'm just I'm just thankful that. Um, there's been a spirit of humility and listening and teachability and learning from each other and all those different things. Um, and, 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 that's, and that's wonderful. Um, so historically, TCPC has felt like a fortification church to many with some sympathies towards domination, but recently being stretched by, um, by our younger friends um, towards um, a more sympathy towards this accommodation paradigm. And I want you to know that you have navigated those differences with so much charity and grace, but I also want you to know that um, if we adopt any of these paradigms that you are sympathetic towards, we will never be a church that exists for the good of the bluegrass. Because ultimately, none of these three models are good for the bluegrass. Ultimately, they all fail us. I want you to know as well that your sympathy for whatever particular paradigm you, you're, you're sympathetic towards. Your sympathy for that is rooted in something very genuine and noble within you. That is, I think you land there because of genuine love for Jesus and wanting to faithfully follow him in this world. I believe it with all my heart. But I also want to say to you that while each of these paradigms possesses kernels of biblical truth, and whatever, that, whatever biblical truth you find in that paradigm that you find attractive, yes, it's there... But they also miss Jesus in significant ways, in significant ways, and can prove prove to be more harmful than helpful to God's purposes in the world. Ultimately, they will hurt the bluegrass, not bless the bluegrass. So we need another way. We need to resist the overly simplistic solutions and recover God's robust plan for redemption in this world. And I think we need it so badly that we're hosting a conference that we hope and pray will overflow into a movement. Um, we are bringing in one of the most trusted voices in the world of cultural engagement and renewal to unpack what this may look like for us. We are going to gather in breakout sessions to discuss practically what this new vision would look like in the areas of things like uh, vocation and education and politics and art. We're going to humbly listen and learn from leaders in our city who will tell us from their perspective, how do they view the church? How, what, what would they say to a local church 
wanting to come alongside them and serve the city, we're going to spend this week just dreaming together of another way. And I'm very excited for it. But as a preview for tonight, let me close by telling you our ultimate goal here. Um, I suggest we look to Jesus. One of the advantages of God becoming man is that we don't have to wonder how God would engage the world. Um, We get to watch God engage the world. We need another paradigm, God's paradigm in Christ. And boy, wouldn't it be cool if it ended with an Asian? Fortification, accommodation, domination, man, it would be delicious to our Presbyterian uh, hunger for orderliness if they gave us an Asian. Well, bless God for the doctrine of incarnation. What, what does a perfect paradigm of cultural engagement and change look like? The incarnation of God into this world. Unlike fortification where the central calling is to protect against the world. Unlike accommodation where the central calling is to collaborate with the world. Unlike domination where the central calling is to triumph over the world. In the incarnation of Jesus, the central calling is the redemption of the world. Unlike fortification, where the central threat is the danger of the world. Unlike accommodation, where the central threat is offending the world. Unlike domination, where the central threat is losing to the world. In the incarnation of Jesus, the central threat is the sinful and fallen state of this world. And then the incarnation takes the strengths and appeals of each of these paradigms and brings them together yet without their weaknesses. Like fortification, in the incarnation, Jesus maintains his holy identity. He is uncompromising. But he did so without compromising his mission. Like accommodation, in the incarnation, Jesus engaged the world. He got messy in this world. But he did so without compromising his identity. Like domination, in the incarnation of Jesus, he came to change this world. He came to fix it, but he did so without compromising love. Now, this is all wonderful in theory, right? Uh, But screaming for practical help and application. What would it look like for you as a Christian and this church as a community to embody the incarnate ways of the Lord Jesus Christ in the bluegrass? We exist for the good of the bluegrass. How do we do that? We're going to spend the rest of the week answering that question together. Um, Invite your friends. Press in on the conversations. Come to the talks. Wrestle with this. And let's pray that God does something special uh, with this week for his glory and the good of the bluegrass. Let me pray. Lord, we do all of this discussion in light of the bigger story that, yes, you created all things good, and, yes, we have messed it all up, but that in... Jesus, you are reconciling all things to yourself. And yes, one day the project will be complete. All things will be restored. And the new heavens and the new earth, the perfect culture of God will reign. And yes, indeed, we will feast in the house of Zion. And the inhabitants of Zion will forever bless you, forever praise you, and every square inch of creation will give glory to Jesus Christ alone. Until that day, Lord, we labor here. Teach us how to follow you well, Jesus, this week. We pray in your name.
Amen.